Welcome, everybody, and thanks for joining us tonight as part of another installment for the AO Trauma North America Journal Club series. Tonight, we will be covering pelvic ring resuscitation specific articles. We've got three good articles, a loaded panelist and, and author collection for you all today. We're very excited. Hopefully, we'll garner a bunch of interest, some questions, some interaction, and obviously learn a lot. I am the chair of this journal club, Lucas Marchand. Thanks again for joining us on this Tuesday night. So here's a look at the moderators tonight. Obviously myself as the chair, we have Dr. Size, uh, Dr. Kellum and Dr. Working who will be conducting interviews for the articles we selected. And here are our faculty authors, Dr. Rout, Dr. O'Toole, and Dr. Perry. I saw everybody uh, prior to the starting or kicking off the meeting, so everybody's here tonight. So we should be able to get everybody's questions answered and really uh, kind of dig into the nitty gritty of these articles. So here's a quick look at the agenda. We'll do the intro. Five minutes in, we're going to go through the first um, journal article, Open Fixation After Preperitoneal Pelvic Packing and its Association with Surgical Site Infections by Dr. Working and Perry. Then Pelvic Ring Injury Mortality, Are We Getting Better by Dr. Callum and O'Toole. And then Circumferential Pelvic Anti-Sock Sheeting, a Temporary Resuscitation Aid by Dr. Saez and Rout. That'll get us to about 8.15. That'll leave us 15 to 20 minutes for questions, and then we'll wrap up. And with that, I'll end the side slideshow and we'll get into our first video. Okay, thanks for everybody for being with us. Uh, I'm Zach Working and I'm here tonight with Josh Perry. This is the AO Journal Club. Um, we are gonna give you a little rundown of a paper that uh, Dr. Perry uh, has been involved in as the senior author on. Uh, this is a, this is a uh, journal article that's coming out in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma. The title of it is Open Fixation After Preperitoneal Pelvic Packing is associated with a high surgical site infection rate. The article is fascinating. We're gonna talk a little bit of history tonight. Um, if it's okay with you, I'd love to give a little rundown, just a brief little summary of the article, if that's okay with you. Of course, thank you. Okay, all right. We really appreciate you coming uh, and joining us from Denver Health tonight. Okay, so basically, this is a retrospective review of a prospectively collected database looking at patients with pelvic ring injuries and comparing a group that received preperitoneal pelvic packing for hemodynamic instability management and then subsequently got fixation of the pelvic ring versus patients who received also fixation and did not have to get any kind of preperitoneal pelvic packing for hemodynamic instability management. Uh, the centers, it's at an urban level one trauma center. That's at Denver Health. Um, the very salient uh, dominant finding here that we're talking about is that the surgical site infection rate in the packing group um, is just north of 30% compared to just north of 10% in the control group. Um, the authors ended up doing a uh, propensity score matched analysis in order to try to uh, take away some of the challenges of analyzing patients of different uh, severity of injury uh, by looking at differences in ISS and ASA score. Uh, for matching. Um, and with the propensity matching, uh, there remained a significant difference with fairly preserved infection rates. Um, and so I think, you know, probably the right place to start here is to consider a little bit 
you know, what is the history of packing? Why is this interesting? And, and why is it particularly interesting for your center? Yeah, so uh, due to our slow angiography or time uh, to get angiography at our center, we get back in 2000, they began doing this preperitoneal packing program. Now, the idea behind that was you can gain hemostasis quicker in these patients who were dying of, of exsanguination. And, you know, that has been going on since uh, the early 2000s at Denver Health. And um, in 2019, you know, uh, we published a paper showing minimal infection risk with uh, preperitoneal packing. Um, but I came to the center around that time, and that has not been my experience, which prompted the study to look at the you know, what is the real infection risk after pelvic packing. Because um, obviously, it, it may be life-saving, but if it ends up in pelvic osteomyelitis, um, it's something that we should be uh, careful about. Yeah, that's a, that's a challenging problem to solve, and practically just as challenging all the rest of it. So, okay, so... Long history of pelvic packing, done pretty successfully. Um, you know, Denver Health has obviously written a lot about this topic. And then you arrive in, in a higher than expected infection rate. Um, and then it turns out that this is a difficult analysis to pull off. You know, it's sort of, uh, talk to me a little bit about the challenges of selecting a control group in this setting. Yeah. So just like the previous study, the control group is just patients getting anterior open reduction internal fixation of the pelvis. Obviously, the, there's going to be significant differences in these. The injury, the pack, packing group is going to be more severely injured, uh, getting more uh, packed red blood cells. You know, everything is going to be at higher risk in them. So we did attempt to do control for a little bit of this with propensity matching. And we were able to get two groups that had the same, I, or the same ISS scores and ASA classifications, which I think able to cor correct for some of it. However, the group still had significant differences in blood loss um, or packed red bl uh, blood cells um, and differences in getting Reboa. So they're still significantly different groups. So there's no no fixing that, but I still think the finding that 30% infection rate in that group is higher than the previous infection rate of 8% that we reported on and uh, is notable. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting, right? Because if you were going to design a randomized controlled trial, you would basically randomize people at the point that they were so sick that they needed hemodynamic management, you know, and you would sort of then randomize them to two different pathways. And, you know, certainly like that seems a very pie in the sky sort of thing. That's kind of hard to randomize at the point of, uh, you know, sort of extreme physiologic problems, um, not only difficult to pull off, but also, I mean, would really restrict your ability to sort of like measure the things that you needed. Yes. And maybe even morally dubious too. And like, and certainly, yeah. Crashing and they need, and the, the general surgeon thinks they need pelvic backing to survive. It's going to be hard to randomize that, that cohort. Yeah. Hard, hard to randomize against survival concerns. I, I agree with that. Um, I feel like propensity matching has gotten a lot of um, a lot of notoriety in the past couple of years. Um, I think we see more and more papers coming out of the Journal of Orthopedic Drama with propensity matching as sort of the matching technique. I'm guilty of that also. You know, we have a paper coming out um, uh, soon with the sort of a similar technique. Um, why do you choose that instead of some other matching technique? I think the ability to get two groups with you know similar or mostly similar in this case, um, uh, differences in characteristics 
is powerful and more convincing than maybe our prior ways of just doing a retrospective analysis with no with no matching mm -hmm. or even the traditional like two to one matching. Um, so just getting two groups with the, no significant differences in those characteristics is, I think, just a better argument. Yeah, I heard I heard someone uh, refer to it uh, almost as if it was like a thoughtful matching rather rather than a random matching. And that, that really had some appeal to me that there was some reason that people got picked rather than just sort of like they were the, you know, next up in the two to one or three to one strategy kind of. Thoughtful matching is a great way to put it. Yeah. So there's an interesting, there's a really interesting secondary finding in this paper, um, which I, I latched onto immediately. And it's, it's even gonna affect one of my patients tomorrow is that, um, you found specifically more infections. It's not just more infections in the treatment pathways. You also found more infections in patients who'd received open reduction internal fixation in the anterior ring um, in patients who'd been packing compared to patients who'd received packing and then ended up with an external fixator for anterior ring control and management. Um, and the numbers aren't small. It's like, again, it's a little bit, you're dialing down into subgroups, but it's like 45% versus 11%. Um, and I'm curious um, if you guys were surprised by that, or is that really what you guys have been seeing a lot is the terms of the consequence of packing. Maybe that's why you started the study and, and like what's changed since then. Yeah. So the, obviously the found a much higher rate, that was really one of the most significant predictors of infection in the uh, packing group was getting a plate afterwards and uh, just anecdotally our group if someone gets packed we're very you know nervous to go in there and take those laps out and put in plates and screws because it does seem like the infection risk uh, was notable and so what has changed we, we brought this data to our general surgeons or the trauma surgeons and we've actually changed our protocols so we have a higher threshold perform pelvic packing now and that's been in place for about a year so prior, it was two packed red blood cells. If a patient is still uh, hemodynamically unstable, they would go for packing. And, you know, maybe that was a little too uh, low of a threshold so that we're now at four units of packed red blood cells. And in the past year, uh, we hadn't done any pelvic packings. Um, so we've definitely dra dramatically reduced the number of pelvic packings we're doing based on the findings of the study. And, um, you know, ongoing studies to see if that has impacted our mortality rates. Um, but we think so in time. Yeah, I, 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 for one, will be fascinated to see sort of what the overall, you know, sort of like life cycle changes uh, result in. You know, you guys are a very interesting and fascinating test case, and I've, I've always thought that. Um, you know, one of the last things I wanted to ask you about in the paper, um, they, there's some mention of uh, the use of Reboa at your institution and you know which is an interesting thing I feel like Reboa is another one of those buzzwords in pelvic resuscitation there was sort of a time where we all thought that was going to be the next big thing to control these patients in super extremists and then there was a, a paper um, by Marchand et al that came out in the JOT that talked about like the really extreme rates of complications that came from that and I'm curious, is this a thing that happens commonly at, at your institution, or is this kind of a couple of one-off sorts of things? It seemed like there was some in your in your cohorts. No, it was being uh, used extremely frequently now. And we have another paper that we'll be presenting a poster on at OTA regarding uh, the complications and mortality rates with Reboa that we also did propensity matching. It has the same limitations, meaning we can't get perfect 
propensity match groups because of, you know, these patients are the, the worst of the worst or in, in extremists. Um, our, our infection rate uh, was lower than that of Marshan at all. Um, but the mortality rate in the propensity match group was similar. So I think there's still, you know, it has significant morbidity. Morbidity should be safe for those much like pelvic packing or crashing um, and, and extremists. Mm -hmm. But great. I think common. So I, that data will be interesting once we get out there. You said a poster at the OTA. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Um, right next poster. So. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, I, I think that covers it. I think that's a really, you know, uh, fantastic review of the ins and outs of your paper and sort of the history and sort of uh, why it is a compelling paper. Um, and I would urge everybody watching tonight to take some time and read this um, and then read some of the other things that Denver Health has published. I mean, I think it's really great to have a center that is willing to kind of um, push the limits a little bit and do some exploration. Um, you know, not everybody has the same scenario at their institution. Some people have better access to angiography. Some people don't. And I think that you, that ends up producing innovation. And it's great that you guys are willing to share your findings from that. Thank you, Zach. Appreciate it. Sweet. Okay, we're going to wrap up on that. And um, thanks. Dr. Bob O'Toole from uh, the R. Adams Cowley um, Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore, who's a senior author on the paper, Pelvic Ring Injury Mortality, Are We Getting Better? Just published in JOT in 2022, and we're going to talk about it tonight. So I'd like to thank Dr. O'Toole for joining us. Uh, this was a retrospective review of uh, over 3,000 patients with non-operative and operatively treated pelvic ring fractures and uh, grouped into two timeframes, an uh, uh, older timeframe and a, a newer timeframe, to look at uh, composite in-hospital mortality rate. And they found that um, the newer timeframe or uh, patients that were treated between 2007 and 2018 had a lower um, mortality, in-hospital mortality rate than um, those that were treated between 1999-2006, which is a previously published cohort. So, Dr. Atul, what, what do you think the biggest findings of this paper is for people that are reading it? Yeah, I think you kind of hit it right there that, you know, unlike other things we had done, and we when we did that previous paper years ago, we sort of showed like, hey, we didn't make any improvements. You know, it's the overall mortality hasn't seemed to change much. Um, this did, and, you know, we've had a, we had a paper on bilateral femurs comparing it to the Carol Copeland paper from years ago saying, look, you know, the death rate of bilateral femurs dropped, but that dropped because bilateral femurs have gotten less severe because of maybe airbags and, you know, you don't get all these thoracic injuries from bilateral femurs like you used to back in the day. That's not the case here because actually when you control for confounders, so things that are associated with death. Uh, in this patient group, it actually makes us look even better. Like we're improving even more over time when you do some advanced modeling. So it's not that the patients are getting less sick or less severely injured. If anything, they look worse uh, in this patient cohort over time. So something, you know, it's not, it's not a randomized trial, but, you know, it, it looks like there might be a signal here and it's pretty sizable. You know, it's kind of cutting the death rate in half um, in this patient group that maybe something has changed in this time period for the better. Yeah, and I think that was one of the strengths of the paper was the subgroup analysis that you guys looked at uh, and uh, controlled for different patient uh, injury factors as well as uh, the classifications. And you found that the, uh, like you said, that the um, the rate that uh, uh, in-hospital mortality rate was even better if once you controlled 
So what do you, do you think there's one thing that we have that's, that you guys are doing that caused that, or is this a, a multifactorial um, uh, chain? Yeah, we of course don't know, which allows you to just make stuff up and say whatever you want. I mean, the, the one, there's a bunch of things that have changed, which I, we can talk about, but one that temporally lines up the best is the change in resuscitation protocols. And so that, that seems to be when it happens. We've changed a bunch of stuff in our center, as, as other centers have too, over this time period. But a lot of those sort of happened after you see the dip. You know, if you kind of look in the paper, there's kind of like a death rate by year. There's kind of a sort of obvious dip at one point. And a lot of the, you know, having the vascular multipurpose room and, and all these things, Roboa and all these things we're doing, well, those all kind of happened after the dip. So, uh, yeah, they may be playing a role. They may be keeping us down, but maybe just, just the change in how resuscitation is done in TXA and things like that are actually, maybe that's what's happening. And can you just touch basically on what you mean by, uh, uh, for the folks listening, the change in resuscitation protocols, uh, how that changed? And I think touch a little bit further on, you have a unique perspective because you trained there while that first paper was published, and now you're an attending during the second cohort, um, and kind of share your perspective on how that's changed in the resuscitation protocols for patients with these injuries. Yeah, and so obviously I'm, you know, speaking well out of my area of expertise. I don't resuscitate anyone, right? But so yeah. one of my trauma colleagues. Any of us on this call do that. So it gives us freedom again to just say whatever we want. But so my understanding is the big changes are permissive hypotension, right? So they're they're more willing to let people be a little hypotensive, uh, which is thought to be better, and and a reliance on a change, you know, getting away from saline and trying to do whole blood, right? So trying to mimic whole blood so one to one ratio or to one ratio or actually giving whole blood and then txa early txa use and so those things changed around the early 2000s and certainly at our center and other centers nationally and that's kind of when you see that dip and so you know we're not worth big surgeons right like we're not the experts in in that we're not the in in north america although in other places right the orthopedic surgeon is the trauma surgeon so there's more of a combined uh, role of that person, but it's, I think it's important for us to have some idea what's going on with that, um, and that has definitely changed over time. And different countries and different systems have different philosophies about that. About uh, you know, should we be flooding the people with saline? Should we be taking them up? How low can their blood pressure be? There's definitely different strategies. And um, I think Raboa is an interesting thing to touch on briefly. There was an initial. Um, uh, love for the the idea of Raboa, and then I think there was some of those papers that came out of the uh, downsides of using it. Have you noticed in your center that this is something that's continued to be used, or there's now used with caution, and it's kind of just extreme circumstances? Definitely used. So Raboa is we were an early adopter, and we still use it. I think some of the complications, and I've never put up Raboa, but you know the complications of it decreased because you know the just the catheters are smaller and the technology has gotten better um you know that thing can go up fast there's some relatively convincing papers and in someone where your options are cross plant the aorta by cracking their chest or putting up a roboa that you probably should put up a roboa but of course the cons you know and you know there's a possible complication of hemipelvectomy or losing beginning an amputation and so if the patient was going to die anyway and now they have a better chance of living that's a good trade but if they were going to be fine, you know, then that's the argument. It's like, well, wait a second, you know, and after getting amputations, that wasn't such a good trade. So the as the complication rate drops, of course, because the technology and technique get better, then you're going to may widen your indications. And so zone three Reboa, so that is Reboa below the renals, they're just going to, then you're going to use in pelvic stuff. 
um, is definitely something that we use in the hemodynamically unstable pelvis patients. If you come in here, hemodynamically unstable pelvis, you know, we can get a, our system can get a rebola very quickly. We can get angio, you know, even though we get angio much quicker than we did years ago, you're still talking, you know, it's not, it's not 10 minutes, you know, they can get a rebola really quickly. And so it's interesting, right? Like the first step is closed reduction. Um, but now sometimes it's like the first step is remote. They're like, we'll just cut off the blood supply to that region. Why do you, why are you close reducing it? Get out of our way. We got to put the remote in. So it's interesting, right? When you have a tool that can like cut off the blood supply to the pelvis, um, it makes you wonder, right? Like, well, what is the first step in this patient? And so what do you, taking that a step further, what do you think the first step is? We've all been taught to put a sheet on the pelvis, kind of close reduction. Uh, and that seems like it's associated with less, uh, risk, though it's still not risk-free. Um, do you see a shift in the next 20 years where that's going to be the case where Reboa just becomes that uh, powerful or? Uh... Yeah, in England, right? In London, they've, they've got it on, my understanding is they have it on the, you know, at least there was a time period, I don't know if they still do, where they were experimenting with putting it on the EMS providers and having, you know, doing it out in the field. Uh, we don't do that still. You know, our first step still is close reduction or binder placed on a sheet place, but then they come in with binders often now on, yeah. in, on the EMS, which is true in a lot of centers all over the country. But it is, it is interesting. You know, they're, now they're kind of together, right? Like, we're like, wow, this patient's tanking. We got the binder on. We got we to get the Reboa. For sure. Can you talk about uh, why you guys use in-hospital mortality as your primary uh, outcome in this study? Yeah. Um, we didn't really have another easy choice to do it. You know, like, we just, we just finished the prevent clock study, totally different study, but the primary outcome there was all-cause mortality, a big randomized trial, right, on um, Lovenox versus aspirin, and that used uh, all-cause mortality um, at 90 days or whatever. And so uh, a lot more work to get that. So now you're searching death indexes and using these these techniques for recording that you got a traffic ticket and you're therefore you were alive at that time point and you know all the stuff we did to try and find out you know people who were lost the plot were they dead or not the nice thing about inpatient mortality which is why it's used a lot it's just easy right it's recorded in the database it's a retrospective unfunded study you just there's your answer and so yeah you're right you know there might be other outcomes 30 day 90 day one year mortality but also inpatient mortality you know if you if you think about this may not be true but if we you think about what is likely mortality that will be affected by stuff we're doing right away, putting the binder on, like you sort of think, well, that's probably not less likely to be influence, influencing death at nine months, which might be, you know, from whatever. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's the strength is that this is, I think as true as you can get to resuscitation affecting outcome would be in hospital mortality. Again, three months probably doesn't matter what your hypotension was on day zero. Um, have you seen that this has effect or impacted your center at all? This study, have people changed practices or uh, been more likely to do something there or uh, other centers that you've heard of this paper? Is this more of just a kind of letting us know that we are these changes in pelvic ring resuscitation are helping people? I think it's mostly the latter. I mean, you know, we often, you know, published papers are like, oh, we suck. Yeah. You know, it's like, Right. And so this is like some paper, like, hmm, maybe like maybe we're actually doing something that's helping. So I think that's kind of useful. Um and and says, well, maybe we should, you know, keep pushing it. Like there's some potential to lower public ring mortality. So maybe we, you know, this the stuff that everyone's talking about, maybe it's maybe it is doing something good. So I think that's it. I don't 
I don't think it necessarily has influenced us what we're doing, but it has encouraged us a little bit that like, oh, maybe we should, I don't know, maybe we can drive it even lower, you know, keep pushing. And to go off that, what do you think the biggest improvement that we need in pelvic ring resuscitation going forward is? What, what changes can we continue to make to get this, drive this uh, in-hospital mortality rate even lower? Yeah, I mean, you know, as, as Dr. Marshall stated in this paper, if you look at pelvic ring mortality, if you control for other injury factors, it about doubles your death rate. And so it's real, you know, that that's something. Head injuries, it's like 17 times. Yeah. So you know, the driver of death in trauma patients is not pelvis, as much as we'd like to think about it, because we're, we're pelvis people, right? It's like closed head injury. And these pelvis patients die a lot because they have head injuries and they have other stuff. It takes enough energy to rip your pelvis apart and bleed, but then you also get other stuff. And so I don't know the answer to that, right? But it may be in some other field of it, but he's definitely, they're definitely confusing patients and you have patients with, you know, we, we all see them all of a sudden our centers with persistent hypotension and displacement of the pelvis and they're in a binder and they kind of look okay. And the rebuttal has been up for a while or you don't use a rebuttal and the angio came in, they didn't see anything. You know, it's, I do think the decision process are like, well, what should we do next um, is tough. And, you know, what is the role of, Public packing in a in a closed pelvis, uh, you know, should that be done or not? We do some of that sometimes. I do think there is there's still a decisional uncertainty for all of us um, as to what what is the next step to do in these patients that are refractory to the first move that you make. Okay. And then lastly, I just want you you use all cause mortality. It, do you have a sense of what you kind of touched on the the head injury, closed head injuries are kind of a big driver of mortality. Do you have a sense of what these people are dying from? Is that what it is, or it's just all over the place and it's hard to kind of say? Yeah, I don't. And obviously, you know, this issue came up a lot in COVID, right? When they're like, what did they die of? Yeah. Did they die with COVID or from COVID? And so, again, mostly not through this study, but actually that prevent clot study, we got more experience about that because we had adjudication committees trying to figure out, like, well, what did the patient die? What was the reason they died? And when you look at these patients, in a longer term, most patients die probably have no idea. I found them at home and they were dead. Yeah. Right now in the hospital, it's hard to figure out for another reason, right? Is that they well, they have a PE and they're septic and they have ARDS and they had a head injury and then they had all this stuff and then someone with true care, right? And you're like, well, what did they die of? You're like, oh, I don't know. They died of all that stuff, you know. Yeah. So it it gets it gets tough, right? Because they're these multi-system patients have multi-system problems that are lethal and. So the bottom line is we didn't look at that, to my knowledge, unless Lucas said we did, but I, I don't remember us looking yeah. at that. Yeah. You know, if you did, I bet it would be a big quagmire, right? You would get in there and be like, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. So it's hard to tell, like, did they die of hemorrhagic shock? It's like, well, they got 20 units of blood when they came in, and we got their blood pressure up, and then all these other things happened, but that didn't help. And then they went into ARDS, and they died of their lungs. Well, is it because they were shocky, and you had to give them so much blood, and their lungs had problems? Yeah. Hard to well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this paper, and uh, we're going to get back to the other papers and the discussion later on. Sounds great. Thanks a lot for having us, and I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Hi, Dr. Rao. Thank you for joining us uh, for this AO webinar talking about pelvic resuscitation. Um, you are obviously an expert and leader in this field of thought, so appreciate you taking the time. I just Thanks want to highlight. Yeah, of course. So I just wanted to highlight. Basically, what I thought were three landmark articles you came out with kind of in succession starting in the early 2000s, um, talking about sheeting 
anti-shock screws and how that sheeting can be applied with anti-shock screws and other types of fixation. Um, just for the participants, I'm going to show some examples that are uh, from the articles you all have, but uh, just for reference as we talk about this. All right, so the first article, the screen's loading right now, is talking about circumferential pelvic anti-shock sheeting. So this was published back in 2002, Journal of Orthopedic Trauma. And I guess, Dr. Rao, you know, this is something we still use today, but can you kind of talk about the origin of this or how this idea came about? Well, I can tell you exactly. I still remember the first patient that uh, we did this to, and it was done by uh, Dr. David Teague and Dr. Winston Warm. Uh, Winston was a resident and Dr. Teague was a fellow, and uh, they were on call one night and a patient with a C-type injury, a really unstable uh, hemipelvic injury with an open uh, perineal injury came in and the patient wasn't doing well and they were asked to provide some type of therapeutic intervention. So uh, they got the idea of encircling the patient in a sheet. They had seen Dr. Mike Copas use a vacuum bean bag prior to this. And so they thought that the sheet would be easier to use than the vacuum bean bag. And the bean, the bean bags worked, you know, it was similar to military anti-shock trousers, so phenomenon of hydraulic pressure. But they uh, pulled on the left hemipelvis, it was the unstable side, they packed the open wound and then um, put on a circumferential sheet, very similar to the one you see here in the diagram. Uh, this is just, of course, just a patient who's not in trouble. This is just a normal patient for having another surgery. But um, the, the, the post sheet x-ray was pretty phenomenal. It was, you could still see the injury sites, but they were almost perfectly reduced. And um, that was for sure the first time I had ever seen anything like that. And, and uh, so, you know, we, we then actually um, did some things to actually hold that reduction by making some working portals and, you know, the, the working portals and everything sort of came right in that same moment. Uh, but the, the sheet, the very first one was a pretty impressive, uh, very ill patient who I think survived and did well as a result of the actions of Dr. Warm and, and Dr. Teague. And then Dr. Falikov and Dr. Woodhouse were residents of ours about 10 years later. And they had seen several patients have this, in, they'd seen it being used. Dr. Falikov was a, a pretty aggressive uh, writer and Dr. Schildauer was a visiting fellow from Germany. And so between the three of them, they were able to come up with this uh, publication of a technical trick uh, to just show the, the application of the sheet, but we had been doing it for probably 10 or 11 years by the time they published uh, this, this paper. Wow, that's great. Yeah, it's such a simple maneuver that's had uh, such a profound effect. That's, that's really uh, amazing. Well, uh, it, became, it became pretty much our standard of care. You know, we, um, we never bought binders or anything like that. We, we didn't we didn't follow into the binder fad. We just kept using sheets and, um, you know, our, our paramedics would keep coker clamps and sheets on their buggies. And um, it just became sort of the standard of care for patients with identifiable uh, unstable injuries. And we were part of the paramedics education and we had a, an annual event with them to where we could go over different cases and things like that. So um, we were working hand in hand with our EMTs and paramedics. Nice. Then uh, I like these pictures, you know, applying the sheet just for the junior fat residents on this call. Any uh, common errors you've seen in sheet application, ways to avoid it? 
Well, I, I mean, we've tried it a, a variety of different ways. You know, some sometimes people don't have clamps, and so you know, I don't think it's a mistake, but you know, it's a, a win-last technique where you can just actually knot the sheet and then use a a stick or some type of a long, you know, device to to turn it down and to, to apply pressure. Uh, sometimes that you know makes a knot in the front that can uh, you know cause some pressure areas that we have to sort of resolve. If you apply it smoothly like this. Um, you know, from crest down beyond trochanter, you know, it's a swaddling procedure that, you know, gives a, usually a good, a good result. Sometimes when you're applying the clamps, I've seen people when they're putting the coker clamps on or a towel clip on, I've seen them, you know, uh, get skin. I even saw one coker clamp uh, about five years ago um, applied onto a guy, a male patient's foreskin. Uh, so it, you have to just be careful. Like, else in medicine you could screw anything up and, uh, but it's it's a pretty hard technique to screw up that's good yeah i definitely want to avoid some of that um and then going forward you kind of alluded to this now a benefit of the sheet being able to work through the portals uh i love the anatomy here that you've drawn out on patients uh being with you in the R, seeing that done in real time is great um any thoughts about what you've done through these sheets i'm guessing basically everything well, the first one I did was actually in angiography. We had a really uh, good colleague named Yoram Ben Menachem, and um, he was actually the chairman of the Department of Radiology, but he was an interventional radiologist. And so he was intimately involved in a lot of the resuscitations of these patients. And he liked doing this because he could cut a hole in the sheet to get to the groin to do the angiographic. And he could do the angiographic procedure with a relatively stabilized uh, or at least a wrapped pelvic ring. I mean, it was stable, but uh, somewhat for, you know, for volume expanded injuries, they were stabilized, uh, the ones with a posterior hinge. So he was uh, good with that, which was one of the biggest accomplishments, you know, is to get it beyond the people that have to work through it. And then the, the trauma surgeons were good with it because they could see the benefit of it just radiographically. They could see the, the, the benefit of it. And then the very first time I did this, we just had a patient who had um, resuscitated pretty well, but not well enough, and still had about a four centimeter or five centimeter gap of his uh, sacroiliac joint. And the trauma surgeon on call that day actually said, can, can you just, you know, uh, put a screw in that, you know, now? And I said, sure. So I went to the operating room and got the, the set and the drill and stuff like that, and some betadine, and then went up to angio and then actually did it using the fluoroscopy uh, machine, which uh, the techs were very good with. Some of the techs used to cross cover in the operating room in the early days. So we had techs that do the inlet outlet and stuff like that. So, and then when we put the screw in, the patient actually, maybe I would say about four or five minutes later, started to have a real positive clinical response to the compression that was applied to the sacroiliac joint with a simple lag screw. Um, I, I wouldn't prefer to do it in angio. I think that's a, it's a, it's a harder, harder environment than the operating room, especially you have to make sure you have, you know, every, everything that you need. Um, but it, it can, it can be done. And, um, uh, anyway, that, that's how that started with the, uh, you know, doing the sheet, doing the working portals, mostly it was just working with Ben Menachem and then taking him down to the OR, but then also, you know, inserting really early on, I think it was maybe the third or fourth patient we had was this guy that we put the screw in as well. Very nice. And then a uh, question, you know, a lot of patients are coming in with binders now on are you switching them out the sheets often, or does it just depend on your plan for them? 
Well, I, you know, unfortunately, I think uh, we see, so if it's on acetabular injuries, we take them off. And so uh, we do see binders on intertropes and binders on femoral necks and binders on femoral shafts. So we, we see uh, binder aholics. Uh, so the binder comes off of the injuries that aren't necessary. And then if the binders aren't having a good reduction, and we think we can get an improved reduction by applying a circumferential sheet, then we certainly will just take off that functionless binder and exchange it for a sheet. But if the binder's done a great job, then we'll just leave them in the binder. And then if we really need that, if we're trying to just hold that reduction, we'll try to cut around the binder and at least get a frame on or some rainbow screws or something. But it's, it's harder to cut through the binder, especially if it's up a little bit higher than it's advocated for. If it gets up into the flank area, it's a little tough to work around. The sheet's, sheet's pretty easy. So we prefer a sheet, but, uh, and if the binder's not functioning, exchange it out. And then um, if the binder's working, try to work with it. If not, then exchange it out. Very good. And then uh, the last paper I want to highlight is anti-shock iliosacral screw. You kind of talked about it, but I love this paper for the images, especially those on the lower left, seeing how these uh, screws have such a powerful effect. Uh, what have it, it's been your experience uh, with these? Well, this is usually about only two or three patients a year at pretty busy centers. So when I was in Seattle, we'd see you know two, two or the two of these maybe a year, and then same same thing here for the last ten years in Houston. Um, I I just want to I remember exactly this patient because uh, you can see this patient's got a perfect injury for a resuscitative screw. He's he's been applied into um, a sheet. Uh, he's been to angiography. You can see the embolic coils already, and the patient is still not doing well. And you can see we've even applied an anterior universal compressor to help get the reduction. And even with all of these different things being applied, we still have this fairly dramatic gap of the SI joint and a patient not doing well. And so this is a patient that I think has a really good, uh, and this guy actually had a really dramatic, probably two or three minutes after we applied the posturing, or for, for sure within five minutes, this guy's entire clinical course uh, reversed, reversed into a very good way. And you can see the reduction is not quite perfect, but in that situation at that time, this is a really good technique. You can you can do this with a C-clamp. You know, the uh, the pelvic anti-shock clamp can also be used for this, and a lot of people uh, may want to use that or prefer to use that. But that device, we tried that in the early 90s and late 80s, and it's a little bit cumbersome. Sometimes it's hard to find, and sometimes it's a little intimidating to apply. And we still would, you know, say put it on in angio. You know, if you're, if you're going to do it, at least use fluoro to make sure that you're docking it where it's supposed to be. But um, I would prefer internal fixation over that thing. With the early experiences we had with that, it um, it was okay, but just uh, a sleeker, um, simpler technique is just to insert the lag screw. And then the reduction's good, add the fully threaded screw just to hold it. People say, well, maybe I'm going to burn up my pathways if I want to revise it to an open reduction. You, you can always find another pathway, especially after you do the reduction. It'll be a little different if I haven't had that be a problem, but I could understand their concern. It just hasn't been a problem. Very good. Right, I'm going to stop sharing the screen here. Um, so appreciate you going through those papers, giving us some inside information. Obviously, uh, you, there's a lot more of the pelvic resuscitation. I know you give a lot of great lectures on these. 
Is it, what are there any major takeaways that you want people to know or some just real basic principles of pelvic resuscitation that the audience can take home? Well, simplistically, you, you've got to show up. So the, the first thing is you, you've got to be prompt to be and realize you're a part of the team and, and, a, and a critical part of the team. The next thing is to keep things very simple. If there are significant perineal open wounds, pack them with a curlix roller too. Just make you know, curlix rolls work great because they're long, they can be wrapped and they can be packed. And even if you have to do two, you can tie them together. So they make fairly great packing material. And then once you've got the wound packed, then you, you'd want to, if it's a perineal wound, you'd want to put on a, a, bind, a binder or a sheet, whatever wrap you prefer to use. I prefer a, a sheet, but it's, it, you know, it's pretty much uh, uh, see, the, see them and get there quickly. Uh, pack the open wounds, wrap the pelvis of some some way, and then make sure that the environment the patient is is warm, so they they don't get coagulopathy from cold, and, and then uh, start to try to work with the resuscitation. Sometimes you're the best person for putting in the proximal tibial uh, bone marrow, I you know, uh, port for resuscitation. Sometimes you need an intraosseous line and. People don't know where the proximal humerus should be uh, catheterized. People don't know where the proximal tibia is weakest and can be catheterized. So a lot of times the orthopedic surgeon can also let help, not just with the packing and the wrapping, and the, but also with the filling and the warming. Uh, these are all critical elements of it as well. And then once you get it all settled down, if they're still not doing well and they have an injury that's uh, good for still a, a, some type of percutaneous screw, whether it's ramus or posterior ring, uh, put that in. I wouldn't recommend doing it in angio. I'd take it to the operating room to where it's more more routine, but uh, it just depends on the environment that you practice in. Very good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about those articles. Uh, obviously, great techniques, ones we still use today, and have had made a big uh, effect on patient care. Appreciate it. Really good. Thank you very much for inviting me, and uh, if you have any other questions, let me know. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks to the faculty authors as well as the moderators that conducted those interviews. Those were great. Three great articles plus some bon bonus articles from Dr. Size and Route. So those were awesome. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining. Uh, we had some good questions in the uh, Q&A, and I guess I want to kick it off with one of the questions that was just asked. Uh, I'll kick this to all three authors. Have you guys had pushback when using the uh, sheeting technique in terms of metal artifact as it pertains to the clamps that are applied to the patients or have you guys switched to using like plastic clamps or something because it's a problem when the patient either goes to angio or goes down for imaging never never yeah i haven't had that issue either but um worth bringing up uh, dr perry would you mind telling us a little bit about how your transition has gone at your center from a center that was pretty heavy in terms of open pelvic packing. And you said now over the last year has really gone away from that. Did you guys get better access to an angio suite or was this simply just a change in protocol after looking at the data? Uh, we did have some new radiologists join us who were like very excited about getting involved. I think one of them actually came from Houston um, and so that helps. We also had a couple uh, trauma surgeons leave that were, you know, they who were performing most of the packing. And then, you know, really just having the collaboration between groups of 
uh, you're just being able to have meetings with these guys and talk about the complications and make changes is really nice to have. And I think that's what that spirit has kept this research um, direction going here for the last decade or so. Great. I have a question just in general for everyone. Uh, so at our institution, we do a lot of pelvic angiography, but you know, the timing and indications haven't been really well protocolized here. Additionally, have you seen issues? I know it's core in the literature, like missed vessels, missed, you know, chances to embolize people having to go back. I know they quoted maybe like 10%. Just wondering if anyone has any personal experience or anecdotes on that. Yes, we published a paper on that. Uh with Eileen Bulger, I think Eileen was the first author, and it was uh, maybe 50, 20 years ago, but we looked and we found patients that on the second angio had lesions that were missed on the first. But I, I think Eileen Bulger was the first author on that. Oh, I think you're talking, Dr. O'Toole, but we can't hear you. Or is it just me? I can't hear you. Oh, sorry. It's just something you should always remember. I don't know if Bob's mic is not working, but it's just something that... Uh, One, two, three. Uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Bob. Oh, you hear, you hear me now? Yeah. Oh, sorry. My first time on Zoom. Um uh yeah so i was going to say that rationale right is one of the things you hear the interventional radiologist say is what dr rauch just says they say well look this is a this is a snapshot in time and i was called in here because this patient was really sick and now the angio is negative but i don't know if it's going to be negative in an hour so i better embolize something and uh or i'll just you know there's nothing arterial here but i'm going to decrease the pressure head going in so it's i think it's you know you get I think you get really different opinions from different interventional radiologists about what they want. And of course the trauma doctors, you know, we get involved and the trauma doctors get involved. So I think there's probably a lot of differences in what people do. When we looked at our, you know, our perception is that if they go there, they're in the barber chair, they're getting a haircut. So if you bring them in, they're going to embolize something. But actually when we looked at it some years ago, only half the patients actually got something. So there were lots of patients, even though our perception was they all got it that they went in, got an angio, and they said, no, it's negative, they didn't do anything. Maybe that's a bad idea, as Dr. Rout saying, maybe that's not smart, you should embolize something. One of the things that helps also is if you do find a negative angio in your first run and the patient's still being actively resuscitated, just leave the catheter in. That helps so much because then if you are still having problems, then they don't have to instrument the artery again, it's just the catheter's in, and then they can take a second look at it an hour later or four hours later or 10 hours, whatever it is, there's just no, there's a lot of value in maintaining the arterial catheter during that initial phase until the patient planes out. Is that something that you're communicating directly with the vascular interventional radiology team, i.e. you're in the room, they have decreased pelvic volume, they get an angiography, they think it's negative and you say, hold on a second, we've had some of these that have needed a repeat angio and have come back positive. So maybe we leave the catheter in, monitor how the patient does. And if they continue to be hypotensive or show signs of under resuscitation, we bring them back for a second look. Sure. That's, those are conversations. That's like 1994 conversations. So those are the conversations we were having in 94. 
uh, and we shouldn't be having those today. But if if you have to have, I mean, you, you have to say and communicate whatever you need to say and communicate to advocate for your patients. And so if your angiographers don't know that, or the trauma surgeons don't know that, then you have to help educate them. It's just like hanging around and putting a warm blanket on someone or sticking a, an intraosseous catheter in. So whatever you can do to help is, is always very helpful. So if, if that's it, is that's communicating with people who just may not know that, that's fine. But in 2023 in North America, I think people know that, but maybe they don't. Question. It was novel in the 90s. Are you, uh, are a lot of people doing TXA for these patients as part of their resuscitation, especially if you're taking them to the OR or anything, or is that part of like their transfusion, massive transfusion protocol when they're coming in? I'll let someone else answer. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, people are getting TXA at our site still. I think, I mean, as I said in that little interview, I'm, I'm not giving anyone TXA and I'm not resuscitating them when they first come in. That's not my role in it. But, um, you know, there's been some controversy about that, even though there's big trials on it as to exactly who benefits from it. Um, and then, you know, they're still trying to find like anything, trying to find subgroups of patients that benefit from different types of resuscitation. TXA is certainly one of those things that's gotten some controversy in the trauma resuscitation community. Yeah, it's controversial in our center for sure. Um, it, they can get it acutely, but if it's delayed at all, meaning the day after, um, then it's a no-go from the trauma team. They do not like it. Yeah, that's kind of the same University of Utah. It was um, after about four hours, it was a no-go from the, uh, the general surgeons wouldn't allow it. Even if you're going the next day for like a bulk reduction or something in the OR, that's interesting because we'll give it just a loading dose if we're taking them to the OR, do like an open approach. Yeah, they were pretty against it. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole spectrum that's represented here, right? Our uh, general surgeons are part of a multi-center trial for pre-hospital uh, TXA. Um, so, I mean, I think that you could see all the different things represented here, you know, that you've got centers here that are people are way aggressive on uh, to the point of doing it pre-hospital and then asking for multiple times in hospital, that's us. And then you guys actually have pushback from your people. So I think Dr. O'Toole's right. I think that we're still searching for what kind of the right fit for this is. I think if you take a look at the data, that's the pre-hospital data is the most convincing for TXA showing benefit in mortality. That's crash one and two clinical trials that have showed a mortality benefit to pre-hospital TXA. I think anything, any TXA trauma patients at least receive after they hit the front doors of your hospital is been slightly controversial. So I think that there's still some room for growth in terms of what we'll learn and how TXA will be used moving forward for the hypotensive patient. Dr. Rout mentioned the use of a C-clamp and his early experience with that. That's something that was being used intermittently while I was in fellowship. So I know Dr. O'Toole has some experience with it. I was wondering if the two of you could review what a C-clamp is. They, uh, Dr. Rout sort of touched on it in their video, but I think that there's going to be some people participating tonight that aren't familiar with it. And then maybe give us some thoughts on like that early experience Dr. Rout had and maybe more modern experience Dr. O'Toole's had and maybe some um, some drawbacks of the use of the of the C-clamp. The anti-shock. We'll start with you. It was just a device that was designed by Reinhold Gantz, 
And then Bruce Browner had a clone of it. Um, it was a device that was applied percutaneously bilaterally to the posterior ilium and then compressed. And Bruce's, Dr. Browner's was uh, uh, cir circular in shape or uh, uh, two thirds of a circle in shape with a big hinge bolt in the front. Uh, Dr. Gonz's was three sides of a square and more like a chair clamp. Uh, they're both, um, uh, I would say, should be applied in angio. If your patient is sick enough for uh, anti-shock clamp, you should probably be in angio and you should use the fluoro to cite where the ileum is. I think people have a lot of trouble. So when we first started using it, we had clinicians that were trying to do it uh, in the early 90s in Seattle. And you know, you'd find it through the greater sciatic notches in the colon. And this is not a good place uh, for a clamp to be. So it's just, um, it, it requires uh, precision to be applied. Those are usually not such precise times. And uh, we uh, rapidly evolved to circumferential wrapping and actually uh, had a much better experience with that. So I haven't seen a, anti, a pelvic anti-shock clamp actually applied to a patient and I would say 25 years. We haven't, we don't use a, a C clamp um, in the posterior ilium, and I've never done that. We have had some experience using uh, the so called T clamp, meaning putting that same clamp on the greater trochanters. And those described Archdeacon like in 2006. And we started messing around with it a little bit when Reboa got very popular. And what we thought we would do is that it would be put on in the um, emergency department by our residents, you know, instead of putting on the binder or whatever, and just like they put in traction pins and all sorts of other stuff, they would apply this thing and then get the, we use binders, but whatever, the binder to get the binder of the sheet off and then have it. So we never did that. So we've always applied it in the operating room. And we had a, a time period of a few years where we were experimenting with it. And I think it's okay. I'm not a super big fan. And I tend not to, to do it. Um, I think there are, there are technical problems with it and with managing the patients with it on. It is very powerful reduction tool, just like a sheet or a binder is. It's sort of embarrassingly good reducer of the pelvis, as Dr. Rott was talking about before. Um, and, but, you know, you got to have one. It's not technically easy to use. I don't have the, we don't have the rotating one. We have the three sides of the squares, Dr. Rott described. And if you don't put the, if you're not sort of collinear on that other axis, it wants to bind as you reduce it. Uh, it can be very difficult to uh, actually enact a, a reduction if you have the things off axis and also the femurs move. And so you just put pins into the femurs Well, the hips can rotate. So what happens when you try and rotate the hips and you've got something in there? But uh, the vascular surgeons loved it because they didn't have to mess around with the sheet or mess around with the binder, right? You just put that thing on there and then unlike an X-Fix, which I think is mechanically quite bad in this situation, this was mechanically pretty good. And um, you could, you know, keep the, keep the pelvis kind of reduced. We do it occasionally now, but it, there was a time period where we were experimenting with it when Reboa was, you know, kind of, we were first using that. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I think the for those unfamiliar, the reading the papers on the T clamp is an is another application of that device that that can be helpful um, for all three um, faculty as well as the moderators. I'd like to ask you all: How long are you willing to leave the patient in a sheet or a binder? And if patient is not clearing to get to the operating room for application of an external fixator or limited internal fixation of the pelvis. 
what are you doing or what are those discussions like with your general surgeons? Because I imagine everyone's encountered this where somebody's got a pelvic ring injury, they're well reduced in a binder or a sheet, but they're getting resuscitated in ICU for multiple days, not clearing. So how long are you leaving them in and what are those discussions like? Dr. Perry, why don't you kick it off? Then we'll go to Dr. O'Toole, Dr. Rao, and then we'll have Dr. Working Size and Callum all weigh in on this. Because I think this is a this is a question and a topic that comes up at my center quite frequently. I can't hear you, Josh. Sorry, first time on Zoom as well. Uh, we routinely move them at uh, 24 hours and expect if the patient is resuscitated. Um, which, you know, a majority of them are at that point. Um, but I'd say most of them are going to the operating room the next day. Um, you know, most of ours come off in the first day, um, but some patients, you know, the patient you're talking about is, okay, well, what if, you know, you can't just take it off? You know, the patient's not doing well still and nobody wants you to operate on them. Uh, you know, do like a big surgery because they're so sick. And what do you do? So I will leave it on sometimes. I have not had great experience with uh, just uniplanar external fixer in the front, either um, Hanover frame or suscitation frame or Pittsburgh frame or whatever you do. I feel like you can get it reduced, but I think mechanically it's not so great, unlike the circumferential uh, application of, of pressure that uh, a sheet or a binder does, which tends to really reduce things. Um, I just think an X-fix, it can be tricky to reduce it, but it really struggles to hold it um, because of it's just so far away. You know, if you take an X-fix in the OR, as I always say, in the pelvis and look at the geometry of it and put your hands where the pelvis is and then try and move it, it like moves all over, right? Because it's not, and so it's great for as a rope, but it's not great to control something in three degrees of freedom or six degrees of freedom. So I think in those cases, what Dr. Routh said is, you know, if you can get early, if you can get in there and actually fix something and, and reduce the pelvis with screws, um, I, we've definitely gotten more aggressive over that in the last 10 or 15 years, for sure. And it used to just be something we do only, in, you know, extreme situations where the patient is really biting it. But now we're, we're much more inclined to do that earlier on and get them out of the binder. But I have not had a lot of experience with soft tissue problems. I know people talk about that, but it's not like, I certainly don't, for me, feel like the clock is ticking and at 25 hours, all the skin's gonna die if I don't get the binder or the sheet off. No, the, the sheet doesn't hurt them anymore. You know, the sheet's not gonna hurt them like the car that ran over them. So if you think that the sheet is hurting their patient, if it's a functional sheet and the patient needs it, you leave it on. It's just like any other type of splint, brace, traction, anything you do, if your patient needs it and it's helping your patient, you need to leave it on. They're not going to die of skin. They're not going to die of blistering. They're not going to die of these things. And if a car ran over them, the sheet's not causing a problem. It was the car. So um, I, I just think that you leave them on as long as they need to. Sometimes you have to replace them because they get foul, you know, but usually the patients can be made well enough to go to the OR and if you've got a good reduction, you can put some working portals and put some screws and a frame on or Ramus screws, whatever it is, and give internal and or external fixation and then get it off. So uh, it's it's a, it's still a potential problem. But, the, you know, in the early 90s, this was much more of a problem than now. 
people are better, you know, with, uh, you know, resuscitating and getting patients cleared. And I think the trauma surgeons understand the value of, you know, a reduced stable ring much more in 2023 than they did in 1983. That's for sure. And one thing that uh, brings up about that X-fix instability, uh, when we change our protocol, we switch from X-fixing and pelvic packing to binding because of what uh, Dr. O'Toole is saying. It's just uh, uh, the X-fix, we have so many pelvic rings that are just very sloppy, not controlled, and we think the binder just does a better job. So that's another change to our protocol. I'm sure you guys have all had these experiences with your general surgery colleagues and that sometimes, you know, they're a little slow and reluctant to let go of history. Um, there's a couple of salient patients at our center uh, from the time of non-selective angiography that developed, you know, wide skin necrosis. And that was attributed to sheets and binders in different cases. And so we've sort of had to come to a compromise because we kind of can't get people to agree on stuff where, you know, if we sort of do things, then we, uh, if we keep sheets or binders on, we get to a protocol of it's like Q12 hour skin checks where we go in and the orthopedic team internally rotates the legs and holds the knees together. And we open up the binder and go like, oh, good, the skin's not dead. And then we close it back up. And so that's what's necessary to keep the peace sometimes. And there's only so many committees you can go to, to try to change, you know, 10 to 15 years of history. So that's where we're at. But Largely, we can keep things on for a long time. And, and I agree about the X-Fix. I think the X-Fix sometimes is ornamental. It may not provide anywhere near as much control as something that goes all the way around. So I think it's just like keeping, like all these things, it's lines of communication. And probably the best thing you can do to help is develop good relationships with those people so that you can talk to them and you know convince them to give you a window to give them a stable pelvis to resuscitate against. Yeah, I agree with that. We've done, uh, we keep people in sheets. I've had people in there three, five days. You know, we change the sheets when they get foul, but I mean, it's rare. I think like it's been like two patients. Otherwise, they've been getting to the OR quick and keeping the sheet on and uh, putting screws in. It's been uh, overall beneficial for both parties, both for general surgery trauma because it gets them taken care of. And then they don't have to worry about this patient being a sheet in the ICU. And then it's something that we stabilize the pelvis. And so their patients, you know, a lot in a lot better position. And I think to answer your second question, uh, Lucas, is if patients aren't clearing, I think it's what Dr. Rout says, time to advocate for your patients and and for you to kind of start looking into why aren't they clearing and for you to have conversations with, I think, attending to attending. And I think that happened a lot uh, at Utah. You know, if, if people aren't clearing, it's not, well, general surgery said they're not cleared uh, and then you move on to the next day. So I think it's making sure you're advocating for the patient and, and looking into why they're not clearing. Sometimes you just have to tell people what you do and, you know, there's a real value in being able to just inject some common sense into these scientific situations. Um, just common sense is really a good thing to have in these environments. And uh, I, I just can't overemphasize that enough. And sometimes the, the surgeons or the other, the neurosurgeons, they need to know that you're going to do something percutaneously and you're not going to lose two liters of blood like the case they saw six months ago. There was a both column that bled a whole bunch. They, they, don't, they don't know what you do, so or they may, but you just have to refresh their memory and say, look, this is a one-hour percutaneous. I'm cutting some holes in the sheets. I'll be through in an hour. And I'm no kidding. But then you have to do what you say you're going to do. You can't say I'm going to take an hour and do percutaneous and then say, oh, while we're here, let's go ahead and nail the tibia or whatever. So you, you've got to at least build the trust by telling them what you're going to do and then doing it. 
Yeah, that's great. Sage advice from everybody. Thanks. I think the communication is key and helping the teams understand um, exactly what you're going to do, because oftentimes what they expect we're going to do is a lot bigger than what we're actually going to do, particularly in these scenarios. So I'm going to share my screen really quick and we'll wrap it up with some slides here. Awesome. So um, a link to this recording will be sent out through Zoom 24 hours after the conclusion of this session. So you all can look for this tomorrow night. Here's an upcoming look at journal clubs for the next three months in September, looking at infection in October, operative treatment of clavicles, and then back to the pelvic ring, but this time discussing another controversial topic, geriatric pelvic ring injuries. So this is uh, my AO. This is a great app that everybody is able to access. Would encourage you guys to use this. It will help you join the Trauma Journal Club discussions and also a plug for the MyAO case folio, which is basically an on-the-go clinical portfolio that helps you organize, store cases, and securely share them on your AO network. And that's it. Thank you, everybody, for joining tonight. We're basically right on time. Super grateful for the moderators as well as the author faculty that joined us tonight to share all of your wisdom and knowledge. Thanks everybody for joining in. Hopefully this was a fruitful experience and a learning activity for everybody. I really appreciate everybody's time on a Tuesday evening. So thanks again, have a good night.